Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I'm your host Simon Wammers here. The format of this show, one of my writers, in this case George, thank you George, has written me a script. The Braemar Hill Murders, The Casual Criminal. oh no, that's the name of <laughs> Normally there's a subtitle and it's like for the episode, but this one just says the, the channel of this channel, this podcast, which is weird. I shouldn't have read that, my bad. There's also pre-reading notes. <laughs> Let's just give over these. Look, if you uh, if you like true crime content like this, if you like the Casual Criminalist, why not subscribe? If you're on the podcast apps, click that subscribe button. If you're on YouTube, subscribe, like, all of that good stuff, and let's jump in. Did I mention that I've not read this before? That's how we do the show. George writes it. I'm going to read it. It's all new. We're going to explore it together. Let's go. Hong Kong. Famously a city of skyscrapers, a concrete jungle in the most literal sense of the term, with by far and away the greatest number of skyscrapers in the world. Is that true? I kind of thought, you know, like New York, like Manhattan. I've been to like New York and into Manhattan. It's crazy. You walk down the street, every building is enormous. But I've not been to Hong Kong. I'd like to go to Hong Kong. But imagine it's super interesting. A whopping 546 buildings fill the city skyline compared to a mere... 302 in New York City and 241 in Dubai. I, I guess Dubai as well, but I kind of imagine Dubai like more spaced out somehow for some reason. But wow, that is a contrast. It's basically almost double the number of skyscrapers compared to New York City, which is mental. It is a city in which one struggles to find a single normal house amidst the unending expanse of skyscrapers and tower blocks that dominate the metropolitan area. Although to be fair, even like regular cities which are not like filled with skyscrapers there's still mostly apartment buildings and stuff it's like unusual to find like like i was over a house in the city it's hard like it's mostly apartments or like um do americans do you call it terraced houses where it's like lots of houses in a row it's very hard to find like detached houses in a city and they're expensive as a result of this image, one may be forgiven for thinking that not a patch of greenery exists in this whole territory, and that every square inch of land in the place is surrendered to the endless concrete obelisks for which the city is so famous. This could not be further from the truth, however, as a great expanse of beautiful countryside dominates the special administrative region. That I didn't know. Like, New York City, um, Central Park, super famous. And, like I said, I've been to New York. Surprisingly massive. Like, I, was, I went there, I was like, holy shit, I thought this was like a park. It's, I mean, of course it's a park, but it's a massive park in the middle of a city. Like, the, the, the value of that <laughs> land is enormous. Does someone own that, or is it owned by the city? Can you imagine owning that? You'd be so rich. It turns out that despite the extreme density of the metropolitan area, only about 25% of the territory of Hong Kong is actually built on as of 2022, and 40% of the territory is designated as protected national parks in which all but the most modest of construction is completely banned. Indeed, one only has to look at uh, north of Siwan Shan and Chak Un to behold a seemingly unending cascade of peaks, mountain greenery which stand even taller and somehow even grander than the great glass and steel monoliths of Central and Causeway Bay. Well, I mean, I know we're on a true crime podcast, but like... This is, I, I, I'm learning facts. I feel like I'm doing a video for my, uh, another channel I do called Geographics. 
The beautiful and expansive greenery of Hong Kong is as much a part of the city's identity as the skyscrapers, and it proves easily accessible by bus, boat, or train. Consequently, even the most stressed and overworked of Hong Kong's 7.4 million residents can find themselves lost in nature, disconnected from the stresses of city life, and relaxed within 30 minutes of leaving their apartment. That actually sounds awesome. I kind of thought Hong Kong was a bit of a concrete jungle, uh, like, like George says, and I'm like, this sounds really nice. Not that, you know, not that concrete jungle doesn't have its appeal, but I like some nature, you know. As much as it may be all but impossible to imagine such circumstances today, however, in times gone by, the hills of Hong Kong have proven to be anything but tranquil, as during particularly unsettling times, their sharp cascading inclines have been transformed into a macabre amphitheater, hosting some truly barbaric acts of human cruelty. Everything from the barbaric mass killings perpetuated by Hong Kong's British and Japanese colonial masters to senseless acts of murder committed by opportunistic and morally bankrupt criminals. And now we're back at it. I almost forgot we are doing a true crime show because someone's getting murdered in those hills it's happening isn't this episode called the bremer hills mystery the bremer's hill murders oh god <laughs> here we go it is one of the latter such incidents which we're going to be looking at today a most horrific incident in which two teenagers kenneth mcbride then 17 years old and nicola myers then 18 years old went to take a stress relieving stroll in the forests near their home by the cruel hands of a small band most evil and foul never returned it was a double murder that quite literally and proverbially tore the heart out of Hong Kong as the city's residents struggled to process not only the brutality of the crime, but also had to come to terms with what was perceived by many as the double standard nature of colonial policing, as many of the city's native Chinese residents noted an above and beyond police response that they simply weren't used to receiving themselves. This is the story of the Bremer Hill murders. The Victims As ever, I, George, the author of today's piece, would like to do what I can to draw more attention to the victims of the crimes that we cover here on The Casual Criminalist. Yeah, I always encourage this. And I see people in the comments talking about how this is a nice thing about this true crime show. And I'm glad that people appreciate that because, I don't know, I think it's super important. George does. All of the other writers do as well. I've impressed upon them the importance of that. Not that they didn't want to do it themselves. Not like I'm the hero for making this happen. They wrote it. They do. Invariably, the world of true crime pays significantly more heed to the perpetrators of wicked murders, undeservedly so, of course, rather than the victims of the crimes, the people whose names and stories we really need to be remembering and commemorating within ourselves. Exactly. Well said. Tragically, the Bremer Hill murders are no exception to this rule, and as an author, you find yourself flooded with easily accessible articles and sources regarding the wicked perpetrators of today's tale. But by comparison, sources of victims come up comparatively dry. I, George, author, will do what I can to right this wrong, and I've trawled through newspaper archives, reached out to a few acquaintances of Kenneth McBride and Nicola Myers that I was able to track down in Hong Kong, and asked the Hong Kong police force themselves for comment in order to attempt to bring together as much information as possible about the pair. As ever, I've also used my natty little research hack of, you know, actually reading the Chinese sources. Yes, the number of times that uh, you know, George has written a script and he's been like, yeah, this this podcast said this, this book said that. And then I, I looked it up and it's like, nah, it's just misinterpretation of the original sources by someone who then was re repeated by someone else and it just gets turned around into just being untrue. So I always love that with George's scripts, we get to the, the you know, the, uh, what are they called? Primary sources. 
Thank you, big brain. Having done this, I can report that what is known is that both Kenneth and Nicola attended Ireland School, an exclusive, prestigious, and expensive private international school in mid-levels, itself an exclusive, prestigious, and expensive district of Hong Kong Island, populated mostly by wealthy expatriates and a spattering of local Hong Kongers. <laughs> it's like a gated community within a gated community. Both were beloved by their community, both inside and outside of school. Kenneth, a native of Scotland who was aged just 17 at the time of his murder, led Ireland School student union was the captain of the school rowing team and a member of the school's debate team these are like these are like expensive school <laughs> like students union rowing team debate team yes his former teacher chris force speaking in a 2004 interview with the scotsman described kenneth as a smart and beloved member of the school community and fondly remembers kenneth speaking stirringly about apartheid in the school assembly the day before his death such positive sentiments were echoed by Nicholas Riley, another then-member of the Ireland School faculty interviewed for today's video, who stated that although they never taught Kenneth directly, his presence on campus was always noted as a positive one. David James, then vice-principal of Ireland School, proudly recalls Kenneth's extensive charity work, such as when he rallied the school to knit squares for Soweto, a charity drive which saw various people across the world knitting garments for disadvantaged children in Africa. Nicola was a budding young scholar who took great interest in the city she found herself residing in on account of her parents' work. Though living in Hong Kong, she developed a love of Chinese culture as well as a rare for Western expats' fluency in both Mandarin and Cantonese. Damn. She had hoped to make this passion her profession after completing her further education and had ambitions of working in either Hong Kong or on the mainland as a translator and interpreter. Simon Boyd, a former classmate of both Kenneth and Nicola, commented in a television interview that she was a popular girl. Sentiments echoed by Nicholas Riley, who said while being interviewed for this piece that she was every bit as popular on campus as Kenneth. The Discovery Kenneth McBride and Nicola Mars left the McBride family home in Bremer Hill Mansions at 1 o'clock on Saturday, the 20th of April 1985, intent on taking a leisurely stroll through the forest near their home and finding somewhere tranquil to settle down and do some studying. This had become a regular routine for the pair, who, in the face of looming A-level exams, often found the time to escape and study together. Kenneth's arm was bound in a sling, having recently torn a tricep during an inter-school rowing competition, so consequently the pair took it steadier than usual, telling their parents they were going to find a nice spot not too far from home, rather than heading to their usual spot further away in the forest. <laughs> I don't... I, I know it's not appropriate. I, I feel like... I just want to tell a story. Like, when I was studying and stuff, uh, I remember it'd be like, yeah, let's go somewhere to study. It'd be like, definitely go in there just because it's a better environment to study be like not because it's like a good 45 minutes away during that 45 minutes i don't have to study <laughs> sorry as the afternoon became the evening the clock struck seven and the pair still didn't come back home and the mcbride family began to get concerned reasoning that even dedicated and hard-working students such as kenneth and nicola i guess the thing is i probably wasn't a super dedicated or hard-working student uh, they were unlikely to be spending so long studying outside in the relative heat of hong kong april Fear had yet to sit in, however, in the McBride household, as the obvious assumption was that they probably had just headed to Nicola's home instead, a somewhat annoying notion for sure, but this was the mid-1980s, long before the wide proliferation of mobile phones, so not checking in for so long was hardly uncommon. Just to ease her mind, Kenneth's mother made a call to the Myers household, where, worryingly, she was told that neither hide nor hair of either young couple had been seen since Nicola left in the early hours of the morning. Panic began to set in, panic that only worsened as the clock kept on ticking, and neither Kenneth nor Nicola came home. As evening became night, and darkness swept over Bremer Hills, Kenneth's father took a torch 
and went out to search for the couple, reasoning that he had a rough idea where they must have headed despite their deviation from their normal route. Sadly, he found no sign of the pair, so he called off the search at one in the morning. Following a sleepless night in an increasingly distress-riddled apartment, the McBride family once again tried to search for the couple as soon as the sun rose that morning. They found one of Kenneth's usually pristine textbooks, torn and discarded on a hillside not far from their home, but otherwise they found no trace of the pair. The ruined textbook, however, convinced the family that something horrible had clearly happened, and after relaying the information of their discovery back to Nicholas' family, a missing persons report was filed with the Royal Hong Kong Police, who immediately assigned officers to comb the area around Bremer Hill to find the pair. Good, nice response, quick response from the police there. I like that. I feel like in some other stories, in some other casual criminalists, be like you sometimes get the response. It's like, oh, they're teenagers. They're 17, 18 years old. They're just off doing their thing. It'll be fine. Excellent work, HKPD. It didn't take long for the bear to be found, although it would not be the police that found them. The following day, on Sunday the 21st of April, a panicked and frantic call was made to the Royal Hong Kong Police Force. The bank manager and fellow residents of Bremerhill Mansions had stumbled upon the deceased remains of Kenneth and Nicola while out on his morning run. When he found them, he was out of breath and exhausted from his ascent up the peak, and at first he struggled quite to believe what he was seeing, but as oxygen returned to his system and his thinking cleared, he fell to his knees in shock at the sight of the battered and broken teenagers that lay before him. The police rushed to the scene following his call. One of the first on the scene was Detective Trevor Collins, who commented the following on the discovery. I was with the Organized and Serious Crime Bureau at the time, and we were called out almost immediately once they discovered the bodies. I remember Kenneth. He was injured all over his body. There were bruises on his neck and his hands, and his feet were tied up. I remember his shoes were missing too. Very odd. Tragically, the perpetrators appear to have saved the worst of their treatment for Nicola, who was found almost completely naked, and it was later discovered that she had been raped. As if this wasn't bad enough, it also appeared as though the physical attack on Nicola had been particularly brutal and drawn out, as over 500 separate wounds and injuries were found on the poor girl's remains. Detective Collins commented the following on the discovery of Nicola's remains. It was an extremely violent attack. There was a huge amount of injuries on both Kenneth and Nicola. It was pretty horrific. I'd worked in homicide for a number of years, and I'd never come across a body with that many injuries. Dave Hodson, the former assistant commissioner of the Royal Hong Kong Police Force, led Hong Kong Island CID at the time and was also a first-hand witness to the crime scene, and he commented the following about the discovery. I received the early call-out, as it were, and I went to the scene. As soon as I got there and reported back that they were two expats who had appeared have been brutally murdered, then the reaction was that this should be dealt with immediately by the Premier Investigations Group. I get the. It's like, obviously, surely this should be dealt with immediately by the Premier Investigation Group because two teenagers have been committed. I don't like this sort of apartheid style. Oh yeah, we should treat the foreigners like they should. The the, the like the colonial masters, they get the best of the police work. It shouldn't really work like that, and that's obviously not the case. And there's obviously that goes on today, even now. Investigation As the search for two missing persons tragically became a double homicide investigation, the matter at hand for the police became piecing together exactly what had happened to Kenneth and Nicola and bringing the perpetrators to justice. Detective Collins continued to be among the top men on the ground at the scene of the crime, and he commented the following regarding the beginning of the investigation. 
We conducted a search of the area to try and find as much evidence and exhibits as we could. We eventually used almost 400 men to comb the area. It's quite a difficult area to comb, you know, it's a hillside, country park, not too many pathways, so sweeping the area for exhibits was difficult. We had to use a helicopter to move them because their bodies couldn't be carried down the hillside. The hill was too difficult, so we arranged a helicopter to pick up the bodies and take them to the British Military Hospital. Then they were taken to the Victoria Public Mortuary, where their post-mortems were held the next day. After moving Kenneth and Nicola to Victoria Public Mortuary, no expense was spared in trying to piece together what had happened to the couple to find their killer. Those 400 men mentioned in the previous quote were bolstered by a further three squadrons of the police tactical unit, heavily armed officers whose regular patrols saw them deep inside Triad territory. This is a huge police response. 400 people? Good lord. To try and find more about the ongoing investigations of the crime scene, let's turn again to Detective Collins. To quote, so, it was a very, very difficult scene. Again, there's a lot of shrubbery, there are a lot of rubbish, and everything we found was tagged, photographed, and catalogued, so it was a very difficult scene. We found exhibits everywhere. Quite a lot of items were found in a small stream, which runs from close to where the bodies were found, down to the back of the Bremer Hills mansions. This included a lot of school books, exercise books. A lot of them were torn. The search proved to be one of the most extensive and expensive in Hong Kong's history. Resources committed to the investigation continued to expand, eventually growing to include up to 800 police officers and several hundred soldiers from the Royal Hong Kong Regiment, as well as a dedicated helicopter which scoured the hillside during all daylight hours of the investigation. What are they looking for? They're not looking for people, because whoever killed them is not going to be around any longer. So they're just looking for bits of evidence. But what evidence? Isn't most of the evidence going to be on the bodies? Isn't that going to be... I just don't it seems like a lot of searching but i'm not sure what they're searching for i mean obviously evidence but what evidence for more insight on the extensiveness of this search let's turn again to dave hodson i think multiple homicides are always unusual and have never been the accepted state of affairs two people being killed at the time was unusual and frankly for them to be two expats was a whole other matter keep the wording of that quote in mind divias because we'll be coming back to that later so them being two expats was a whole other murder so i guess like murder of foreigners was a lot less likely i find the word expat a bit of a weird word because it's like what's the difference aren't you just i i know it's like different i'm sure there's a technical definition but it always feels like oh no i'm an expat it's a bit snobby like it's more rather than i never really thought about this before because i've lived abroad for a like long time and i guess i've thought of myself as both like expat immigrants whatever i'm just not it feels it's a bit of a weird word isn't it overall is that just something i think about don't know initial investigations at the crime scene proved largely fruitless despite the recovery of kenneth and nicola's bodies as well as their belongings little evidence emerged that would allow the police to begin building a picture of what had happened much less who might have done it as detective collins put it not one person heard saw or had any idea of what really had happened very very difficult we didn't have any eyewitnesses we didn't have any physical evidence per se there was however some silver lining to an increasingly gray and clouded investigation three battered and blood-stained pieces of wood that the police believed to be the murder weapons or at least some of the murder weapons okay so they're looking this is the sort of evidence like they didn't find a lot but they found these murder weapons and i'm like what's the helicopter looking for did they have a helicopter searching they did right what is that looking for what are 400 people looking for how far away from that crime scene are you looking 
What's more, one of the pieces of wood had a clear and identifiable fingerprint on it that did not belong to either Nicola or Kenneth, and several more such prints were found on the tattered and scattered remains of textbooks and other study supplies that the police had recovered from the hillside. Well, you know, definitely lent textbooks to friends, They've t- friends have touched exercise books, teachers certainly do, parents, siblings, uh, but a murder weapon? That is an interesting fingerprint. This ray of hope was soon dissipated, however, as for now, at least, the fingerprints would prove to be a dead end. All recovered fingerprints not belonging to Nicola and Kenneth were fed into the Royal Hong Kong Police Force's criminal fingerprint database, and no matches were found. With the completion of Kenneth and Nicola's postmortems on the 22nd of April, the aforementioned fingerprints were supplemented with further forensic evidence, and a slightly clearer picture of the killings began to form. In addition to Nicola's 500-plus wounds, traces of semen were also found on her, as well as splatters of blood that didn't belong to either her or Kenneth. From this, they were able to surmise that at least one male had to be involved in the killings, but not much else. After Kenneth's post-mortem, the police began to more firmly suspect that the killings were not a solo effort and must have been carried out by a group, because despite his broken collarbone, Kenneth had sustained over 100 defensive injuries, attesting that he put up a hell of a resistance to the attackers and casting serious doubt on the ability of one person to bring him down. As Detective Collins surmises, from the injuries that were discovered on Kenneth, there were a lot of defensive-type wounds, so it obviously put up quite a struggle, so there had to be more than two culprits, let's say. Sadly, all of this new forensic evidence proved to be of little utility as the primitive state of forensic science back in the mid-1980s meant that very few meaningful conclusions as the identities of Kenneth and Nicholas killers were able to be reached. They were able to surmise for sure that at least one male had been involved in the killings, but little else definitive. Well, yeah, but we already knew that. As the recovery of evidence from the crime scene at Bremer Hill began to slow to a trickle, it appeared as though no decisive case-proving piece of evidence was going to emerge, and Hong Kong Island CID were left with the unenviable task of drawing up a strategy for finding Kenneth and Nicola's killers. With their leads so far amounting to a group of people, one of whom is male, the police did all they could in such a situation and cast a wide and far-reaching net in the hope of securing a breakthrough and snaring their killers by pure chance. For more, Let's throw back to the ever-valuable testimony of Detective Collins. Quote, We decided to look at possible suspects, and what we did was every single police station on Hong Kong Island to start with. Any stop and search that had been conducted by any police officer involving two or more people, we would get details of those and locate and question them. That is such a wide net. You're going to be talking to so many people. The investigation at, or rather from the hillside, also continued as the uniformed officers and soldiers of the Hong Kong Regiment returned to their regular duties following the conclusion of the search of the crime scene. The organized and serious crime bureau began searching the area around the crime scene, expanding outwards from where Kenneth and Nicholas' remains had been found in increasingly large circles. As the search continued in both the streets of Hong Kong and the countryside around Bremer Hill, a number of leading theories began to be floated by investigating detectives. One such theory hypothesized that it may have been a mugging gone wrong that Bremer Hill, well known for being a wealthy expat enclave, had been targeted by a local gang eager to rob some well-heeled foreigners, and this robbery then escalated to homicide either by accident or out of rage when Kenneth and Nicola were found to be all but empty-pocketed. Um, I don't think 500-plus injuries plus sexual assault and rape is something that happens after a failed robbery this seems way more targeted by someone who's way more up than just wants to go robbing another theory suggests that the killings may have been carried out as part of a triad initiation ceremony eager and aspiring would-be triads sent out to kill some foreigners in order to prove their loyalty to their prospective criminal family that up does that actually happen that sounds like some movie why would you just be murdering random people 
just like prove your thing to the family by murdering an actual enemy what the hell these explanations were later dismissed, but little did the investigating detectives know that between the guess of a triad connection and a rage-fueled mugging gone wrong, they were both uncannily close to the truth. <laughs> wow, you let me down the wrong path there, George. That's, I mean, that's a twist. Because I think both of those were so unlikely. And now it's like, oh, that's, that's kind of what happened. Okay, let's find out. Eventually, the police had to shake up their approach yet again. Several weeks of further combing the countryside and stop-and-search investigations had come up empty-handed and delivered nothing but confusing and unhelpful evidence and empty rumors. They expanded their operation to include door-to-door -door questioning, starting at Bremerhill Mansions and gradually going outwards to the district of Tinhau, North Point, and Fortress Hill that sat at the base of Bremerhill. On this further expanded search, Detective Collins Collins said that, it ended up with some 18,000 people being interviewed in the end, and about 180 people of interest that we sort of tried to locate and question who were identified as possible suspects. At the same time, we looked at finding informants, looking for information on people who might know anything, might be dealing with it, might have talked about it." End quote. Methodical this ever-expanding search may have been, but the leave-no-stone-unturned approach to the investigation soon turned up another problem. The Royal Hong Kong Police Force has ended up with so much data that they could hardly process and sift through it all. One day it was decided that enough was enough, and after pulling himself free of a waist-deep pile of interview notes, Commissioner Roy Henry petitioned Governor Edward Yode for funds to procure a new computer data entry filing system from England, one that had been introduced following the rampage of the Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe, and allowed officers to view evidence from multiple crime scenes simultaneously. Henry was duly handed a blank check by the governor, who was most keen to see Kenneth and Nicholas Killer brought to justice. Yeah, and this is a machine. The ones that used it for this case, like the computerization of all of this stuff and uh, to help with sorting data, that's going to be super useful in the future as well. This sounds like a great excuse to get one of those because it'll, you know, get a lot more people off the streets. It was none other than Detective Collins who received the honor of flying to London to get familiarized with the new system, and he commented the following regarding it. I'm not sure it helped us solve it, but it helped us speed up the way we could handle the information that was coming in. Well, I mean, that sounds like it's definitely helpful. Like, you've got so much paperwork you can't even deal with it, having a computer sort and uh, sift it all. That sounds great. I mean, it's not going to solve the crime for you. <laughs> what do you expect? He goes there and he's like, ah, the computer is going to solve all of our problems. It will tell us who the murderer is. It's like, mate, it's not going to do that. It's just going to allow you to, you know, assess the information better. It's like, oh, God, it's so expensive. It's not even going to solve the crime for me. While in London being trained on this new system, Detective Collins took key pieces of evidence to the British Home Office Forensic Laboratories for analysis and made use of the facilities that were completely unavailable back in Hong Kong. To quote, We had a number of forensic exhibits in the form of blood and semen, so we had a blood grouping as it was in those days because we didn't have the luxury of DNA and it was a matter of eliminating people as we went along in regards to that blood grouping. There was a partial fingerprint in blood and mud with a hair that was all dark in the same mark and it was very difficult for us to examine it without damaging it. We also asked them to examine under their other new methods, fingerprints in particular. But alas, all of this extra analysis would come up to naught. Under the lens of the British Home Officers, no expenses spared microscopes, the fingerprints proved to be of too low of a quality to be of use to the detectives. The detectives had fully exploited all of their potential forensic avenues and it hit a dead end. There was no recovered evidence that could be taken forward to identify the subject, and all hope for finding Kenneth and Nicholas killers now rested with the street team striking gold. Or 
did it because according to multiple chinese language sources examined for the completion of today's script as the investigation appeared to be hitting a dead end the royal hong kong police force began turning to more and more unorthodox methods as they desperately sought more information on the killing of nicola and kenneth this came in the form of an unnamed local chinese fruit seller who one day appeared at the reception of wan chai police station who claimed to be a psychic and wished to lend her assistance to the case now look i am the least me simon i am the least yeah let's listen to the psychic person but in this case you must absolutely listen to them because you know what being a psychic sounds like a bloody good way to tell people uh clues about a case without revealing a how you found out about it or b potentially getting killed by the triads being like how did you know where the crime scene was it came to me in a dream prove otherwise please don't prove otherwise please don't even try i'm doing you a favor don't look into me too much it came to me in a dream or listen to these people don't dismiss them out of hand the police were taken aback by these claims but with the woman's husband vouching that she who otherwise didn't speak a word of english often awoke in the middle of the night screaming and shouting in fluent english they reasoned there was no harm to be found in humoring the woman and seeing what she had to say especially as the case otherwise had hit a dead end dr Yung chi tao then the first clinical hypnotist recognized by the government in hong kong a man who often assisted the police with investigations was brought in to interview and examine the woman and see if there was any legitimacy to her claims he commented long quote here let's go she was not an eyewitness and had no connection with the two deceased victims she was brought in by a husband who claimed he often found her pale as a ghost and speaking perfect english in the dead of night although there was no clear connection to the case the husband believed this may be of some use to the case as it was hardly a secret on the streets of hong kong that the investigation was stalling the police invited me to hypnotize her hoping to find answers buried deep in her subconscious the moment the woman arrived she pointed straight up at the superintendent in charge of the case and said in english you help me she seemed more than a little weird and everyone present including myself were very puzzled indeed despite the weirdness of the situation she gave me many details about the case details which we already knew to be true and details which would later prove to be we wouldn't submit any of this evidence to the court of course but i will always find it unusual how she was perfectly correct a lot of people say it really was the ghost of nicola speaking through her no she just knows something about the case like that's it or she's very lucky but i think she probably knows something about the case and is using or someone is using her as a way to get this information to the police without it being used in court without her being arrested for being an accomplice some shit like that now to viewers i george as the writer of today's video have more than a few skepticisms about this particular detail as i'm sure simon does but as ever i try to bring you our most cherished and loved audience the most comprehensive reporting possible of the cases we cover and to a certain extent i was reluctant to include this detail as in some regard it almost felt a bit disrespectful to nicola's memory to do so but the fact of the matter is that in the chinese language reporting this is an inescapable detail of the case and i would feel it would be intellectually dishonest of myself not to include it so I, instead i opted to do so but i have presented it in a hopefully appropriate context and by making my own personal skepticisms on these claims very clear and apparent yeah um again i just i i think like as i said like when this is first introduced don't ignore the psychic who comes to your door telling you she's got information about the case because and i think it was it was i i didn't really ever think about this before i was just like psychics get them out of it <laughs> it's ridiculous but then there was that case um i can't remember what episode it was but it was about the the was she from the philippines the woman and she was like using 
like we didn't we never found out for sure but my big speculation and i think whoever wrote that piece sorry uh speculation was that she was using it to like um reveal information about the case that she knew without you know putting herself on the chopping block so i'm always like yeah listen to the psychics because they're 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 you know it's it's probably not psychic energy that they're using to get that information to you how does she know so much about the case because she was involved in it somehow and doesn't want to reveal it of course i i think most of it's probably bullshit but you know occasionally it could be useful worth looking into if your case is at a dead end Eventually, with all the available avenues open to them, and both orthodox and unorthodox having failed to produce any meaningful leads in the case, the Royal Hong Kong Police put out a $50,000 uh, Hong Kong dollar reward. Sorry, I think it's like 50000 It's usually you just knock off a zero to get to American dollars, right? So that's like five grand American. For information that led to the arrest of the killers, and this yielded nothing. The telephone attendant sat idle. The handset gathering dust has not one single useful tip was promoted by the offering of this reward. Eventually, in November 1985, an anonymous Hong Kong businessman raised the reward 11-fold by adding 500,000 Hong Kong dollars of his own money to the pot, which boosted the sum to a nice and healthy 550,000 Hong Kong dollars. This new reward yielded everything. As Detective Collins explains, yeah, because it's like five grand. It's like, okay, sure, I mean, and this was like back in the 80s. Yeah, it's a lot of money, but it's a lot different like five grand's not like life-changing money it's 50 grand american life-changing yeah i guess that's that's a bit that's a that's a lot bigger chunk that's like pay off your mortgage or like at least a chunk of it change that's like pay off your car that's 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 big money whereas 5k is more like okay i'm gonna be more comfortable for a few months i could get one of those macbook studios <laughs> jesus <laughs> So Detective Collins explains, quote, This, of course, was a huge sum of money in those days, and we started to get all sorts of information come in as a result of that reward. A lot of it was of no use, but eventually we got some information regarding someone who had gone to his triad boss and asked for help financially because he'd committed the Bremer Hills murders. Your ears did not deceive their viewers. In a most unlikely twist, it was in fact a triad lieutenant of all people who called up to claim this reward, and he did so by pointing his finger firmly at one of his minions, Pang Shun Yi. I have a little footnote here. A note on the pronunciations and transliterations since we have hit the first Chinese name of today's script. After writing several scripts, a casual criminalist, I, George, realized that unless one has been taught to read tone marks on transliterated Chinese, the transliteration is all but useless anyway and usually still results in an incorrect pronunciation. <laughs> Sorry, George. I do my best. Uh, by best, I mean I guess. So, with this in mind, today's video, I'll not be attempting to private any accurate transliterations for Simon, and instead, for the sake of simplicity and coherence, we'll be sticking to the familiar and accepted pronunciations already common in English-speaking circulation. Yeah, all right, everyone, so chill out. He's Pang Shung Yi. <laughs> oh, man, George gave me, like, transliterated things that I still couldn't get it right. All that was to be done now was to find this Pang Shung Yi, and maybe, God willing, the investigations could begin to get to the bottom of what happened to Kenneth and Nicola. The Arrest and the Confession you may find it surprising, dear viewers, that a senior triad would blow the whistle on one of his own underlings, especially in light of the famous 36 blood oaths that supposedly bind all triad members together under the oath of pain of horrific penance and torture for wavering loyalty. So, for some perspective, let us throw it back to former Assistant Commissioner of Police Dave Hodson. But before we do, there's a footnote here which came in the middle of the sentence, which I can't really just stop there and do it. So, let's have a look now. Oh, it's about the oaths. It's a lot of information about oaths. Do we want to do it? Let's do it. I paid for the words. Let's use them. 
The 36 Triad Oaths actually have quite an interesting depth in history that goes far beyond their use as a practical tool for enforcing loyalty. The origin of the oath dates back to the 1636-1912 Qing Dynasty, with the exact date of formation being hotly contested, but generally to be in either 1760 or 1769. What we now understand as triads originally formed as a secret society, with the intent of overthrowing the then-ruling Manchu Qing Dynasty, which was often considered tyrannical and foreign compared to the Hang Ming Dynasty that preceded it. Consequently, the oaths consist of a mix of practical oaths of allegiance to their comrades in crime, such as, I shall never embezzle cash or property from my sworn brothers. If I break this oath, I will be killed by a myriad of swords. Oh my god, if I'm going to like battle with someone and they're like, I swear an oath to never steal money from my comrades, I'll be like, bro, how about you swear an oath where like if someone's coming at me with a sword, you fucking help me out? <laughs> I'll give you some money, shit. And others which proclaim loyalty to the Hangman dynasty, such as, after entering the Hong Gates, I shall be loyal and faithful and shall endeavor to overthrow the Qing and restore the Ming by coordinating my efforts with those of my sworn brothers, even though my brothers and I may not be in the same profession. <laughs> this is so enormously specific. I shall stand by my friend here, even though he be a lawyer and I be a doctor. <laughs> All right. Our common aim is to avenge our five ancestors. The 36 triad oaths, at least as a formal ceremony, have purportedly fallen out of favor in recent years, as the triads modernize alongside the rest of China and begin to appreciate the need for more discretion and less pomp and circumstance. It's like, yeah, you're in the triads. What you do is crime. You shouldn't be advertising that. Come on. Less pomp and circumstance around gangs. But apparently, at least according to a taxi driver I once had who was full of tattoos and missing a finger, so assumedly knew about such things, the references to the old Ming dynasty are still included among the oaths to this day, but as a matter of tradition, rather than any actual want to change the governance of modern China. If you're a taxi, like, no offense to taxi drivers, but it's not like some career where you're going to make absolute mega bank. Why are you in the triads and also a taxi driver? Surely, like, what the attraction of crime is money. Like, if you're joining a gang, it's not because you love being in a gang. Or maybe it is. I guess it depends on the type of... If you're, like, a white supremacist gang, you're like, Yeah, brothers! But I think most of the time it's, like, about money. Right? So why are you in a gang and also driving a taxi? That kind of sucks. It's like you've got the worst of both worlds. Not that... I'm not trying to shit on taxi drivers. That's obviously fine. I'm just saying, like, why would you be a criminal as well? If it's not going to make you so much money that you don't have to drive a taxi. What's up? Uh, okay, so after that very long interlude, we're going back to the Dave Hodson, the former assistant commissioner of police, who had a quote about the blood oaths. No, it wasn't common to come up with large rewards, but it was an unusual case. It had got emotions running. The oaths, that's all nonsense. People do things for money. Yes, exactly. It's as simple as that. There are many reasons why people are involved in gang and criminal activities, but money is a significant factor in quite a range of criminal activities. No shit. Isn't most crime... Uh, I feel okay, so like violent crime, I guess, is mostly about people just being dicks to each other. But like, organized crime is money. Um, white collar crime is all money. It's always m drug dealing is money. Um, it's money, 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 money. Further perspective on this new turn in the case was added again by Detective Collins, who also happened to be the officer who actually received the call with our finger pointing triad all the way back in 1985. He wouldn't have been overly popular for sure, he wouldn't have won too many friends, but I guess with half a million Hong Kong dollars, it had quite a different lifestyle to what he would have had without it. I don't know, man. Betraying a fucking tri- like, I don't know dick about the triads. 
all I know is that from what George just said, I remember about the chopping off the, the fingers thing. I remember about the loyalty. There's going to be death. I'll be like, yo, if, if you betray the triads, you better fuck it. You better use that. And it's only 50,000 American dollars. Is that enough to go and start a new life somewhere else? Because you're going to have to. Because those triads, man, I don't, they're, they're coming. The mystery triad lieutenant's finger-pointing session proved to be a most explicit and candid tell-all. When asked how he knew who killed Kenneth and Nicola, he went on to describe to Detective Collins how Pang Sheng Yi had appeared on his own one night in the illegal Mahjong parlor that served as the triad's base of operations. He was but a minion, an underling, a junior member of the triad, but despite his lowly position, the informer remembered vividly when Pang Sheng Yi came into the parlor one night looking akin to the cat that got the cream with an ear-to-ear -ear smile plastered across his face a sprightly spring to his step and a mouthful of stories about a recent job of his wait he's not happy because he just murdered these two people this guy needs to be fucking shot the triad lieutenant described to detective collins how he sat to the side and listened to pang shun yi spin the tale of his terrible exploits to their boss their boss, clearly furious at this announcement, kept a surface-level facade of approval over his raid just long enough to encourage the surrendering of the full story so he knew exactly how big of a mess he had to clean up. And then, when he had harvested all available information from him, the boss's cheerful lack had disappeared and he exploded in a fit of nuclear rage at Pang Shung Yi. This feels made up, for one. I'm not sure I really believe this story. I think this is just a guy trying to get some money and he's spinning a tail because this just sounds a little bit unbelievable but also that boss the crime boss there who's just like yeah man you tell me everything good job great job great job great job tell me more tell me more you fucking idiot that guys that's that's pretty that's keeping you cool man good for you words began to be flung at him from the boss as he made it blatantly clear how monumentally stupid had been it killed two teenagers for what a dollar and a pair of trainers Eventually, the boss ran out of words to throw at him, but with his rage far from tempered, words became his fists, and fists became a chair, and a chair eventually became a knife. At this point, the tell-all triad claims he rose from his chair and threw himself between Shunyi and the boss, begging him to temper his rage before he made any rash decisions that he might live to regret. This is made up. You just had to throw it at the end that you're also a hero. And also, if the mob boss wants to kill his underling what, what what are you up to he's the mob boss he's like hanging out in some like mahjong which is like chinese gambling right he's hanging out there he's probably got a fat cigar he's probably like chopping people's fingers off and you're like no boss don't kill him you might regret bro just let him kill him christ what's wrong with you he's gonna kill you as well he's a mob boss are you insane Detective Collins continued to sit for several hours as the story continued to unravel from there. He heard how Pang Shung Yi, petrified of retribution, had thrown himself on his proverbial gladius and begged for forgiveness and atonement. But those further details mattered little to the ongoing investigation. Finally, they had a suspect. Now all they had to do was bring him in. This is not a suspect. This is just clearly bullshit. I'll be very. I, George has already surprised me in this episode once, more than once. There's lots of good stuff here, but that that one at the beginning and. I think he'll maybe he'll surprise me again maybe this is actually what happens but it feels just a bit silly let's see all available resources were placed into tracking down the five boys fingered during the triad tell-all specifically targeted patrols began circling the districts often frequented by pang shung yi the locations of which were duly passed on to the police by their triad informants and for good measure his photograph was pulled from the hong kong identity card database and copies were given to every single officer in the city on the off chance they should pass him it took several weeks but eventually he was found the honor of bringing pang shun yi in fell to anonymous chinese beat officer whose name has sadly been lost to history but 
While we do not know the officer's name, we do know what he did. The officer was on patrol late one evening in Tin Hau, a small district nestled at the foot of Bremer Hill. The district was, and still is, absolutely stuffed with restaurants and shops, so even late at night the area was full shoulder to shoulder. The officer was, of course, aware that he was meant to be keeping an eye out for Pang Shung Yi, but with the vast cascade of people that filled the street passing faster than he could process them, the officer had largely placed that task at the back of his mind. That was until when, by pure chance, he went to maneuver himself towards a storefront to move out of the way of oncoming pedestrians, and when he turned his head leftwards, who should be staring at him, clearly terror-riddled and petrified of being caught, but Pang Shun Yi! In a flash, the officer's right hand went to hover over his service revolver, as it always did when arresting a known triad, and his left hand clamped down on Shun Yi's shoulder to restrain him. He had nowhere to run, and promptly found himself in the back of a police van and thrown into a cell to await further questioning. Now, this may come as a surprise, dear viewers, as throughout this story, the triads have shown themselves to be so loyal and honorable that it would shock you to know that Pan Shun Yi squealed like a little piggy, and only with the gentlest of prods from the interviewing detectives. These guys don't seem very afraid of their blood loyalty oath and the, the forest of swords that's going to come down on them. They're just like, no, it's him! <laughs> the blood oath means nothing! He immediately gave up four other names, Tam, Si Foon, Chu Wai Man, Chung, Yao Hang, and Wan Sam Lung. All four were picked up promptly and joined Pang Sheng Yi in the cells of Wan Chai Police Station. They were like, Pan, 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 when we get out of here, we get out of here. Forest of swords, mate. Forest of swords. And he's like, none of us get out of here. All right, then. Showers in the prison. Forest of short swords. <laughs> After six long months of searching, the Royal Hong Kong Police were certain they had found their killers. Not only did all of their confessions match, as surprisingly all five of the boys surrendered matching stories without incident, but on the feet of Tam Sifun were a white pair of Nike trainers of the exact same size and type that were missing from Kenneth's remains. Detective Collins had the following comments regarding this twist in today's story. Quote, Having interviewed the triad protector, we managed to identify identify Pang Shung Yi over the course of several weeks after we arrested the first. We knew there were five of them, and all five were picked up at 11.30 of the following night. I think if we didn't have such a large reward, it would have gone on. I mean, I think we would have caught them, but it would have gone on for a long, long time. This Pang dude, isn't he going to be... So he's got all his money, right? He's got the 500,000 Hong Kong dollars. But he's also in the police station, and he's a part of this crime. Did he also negotiate immunity? Because otherwise he's going to go to prison forever and he's going to have all that money on the outside. What's he going to do with it? He's going to buy some, like, nice shit at the prison shop? <laughs> going to get some more noodles? I am so... Georgia surprised me again. I mean, we're only halfway through, a little over halfway through today's episode, so maybe there's more to it than this. But I just don't feel that... Like, that story he spun just seems so unlikely. With all our suspects now duly arrested, I can share with you a shocking detail that up until now... I have been intentionally scant with the age of the killers. Of the five monsters that ended the lives of Kenneth McBride, aged 17, and Nicola Myers, aged 18, mere teenagers, barely even adults themselves, the two were teenagers themselves. Pang Shun Yi was aged 24, Tam Shi Foon, 20, Chu Wai Man, 25, Chung Yao Hang, 17, and Won Sam Lung, aged 16. I mean, this doesn't surprise me enormously because they're like gangs. Don't gangs, they're like draw blood young go out there and kill someone it's like i'm 12. it's like you get in the triads it's what gangs do 
It's like part of the fucked up psychology of gangs, isn't it? The age of Chiang Yao Hang and Wang Sam Lung was every bit as shocking to the investigators back then as it is to us now, but it mattered little. The decision was made to charge, investigate, and prosecute them as adults. Okay, 16, 17, fair. If they were like 12, it'd be a little bit different. But oh, 16 is so young. 17 feels a bit older. 18, you're an adult. But it's also, it's not black and white. I mean, it is black and white, obviously, legally. But it doesn't feel like there's that whole scale like i was definitely i was an idiot at 15 less of an idiot at 25 still an idiot but even less at 35 i assume when i'm 45 i'll be even less of an idiot but it's like we definitely mature and stuff over age it's not like boom 17 to 18 now you could be tried as an adult i mean it is like that but it shouldn't be boom you could be tried as an adult 16 because there are 16 year olds who are like mature and there are 24 year olds who are like immature it's i don't know oh whatever we got to draw a line somewhere obviously but it's complicated. With the manhunt now concluded, priority shifted to piecing together exactly what had happened and getting the case ready for prosecution. Unfortunately, despite investigators knowing full well they had their killers, much of their evidence was far from watertight. None of the fingerprints were of sufficient quality to be submissible to a court, and the primitive forensics of the day could do little more than prove the blood found at the scene was of the same type of that of the accused, so the forensic angle was a no-go. They needed a confession, and they needed it now. This was a task that proved harder than one may first imagine. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> You're like, so it turns out we uh, don't have any DNA evidence. We don't have any usable fingerprints. Uh, we don't have any witnesses. So what we're going to need from you is a confession. I'll be like, uh, fuck no. <laughs> that sounds like a bad idea. What do you think, lawyer? Fuck no. Fuck no. As previously mentioned, all five suspects seemed incredibly forthcoming, but investigators oh, were taking nothing for granted. It wouldn't be the first time sweet-tongued monsters had tried to charm their way to freedom, and every precaution was taken to coax the truth out of the boys. They were all separated and moved to different police stations to remove any chance they might cross paths and get the chance to corroborate their stories, and over the course of several months, they were repeatedly interviewed over and over again. Investigators continually held a spotlight on them, poking and prodding at any slight deviations and differences that appeared in their stories, and eventually it was proposed that they sign a formal confession. A proposal that, shockingly, all five suspects immediately submitted to, meaning that finally, seven long months after Kenneth and Nicola's bodies had been found, the police knew exactly what had happened. Is that it? Are we wrapping it up so neatly and tidily? We're on page 13 of 24. Something more must happen, unless the rest of it's the trial. Did we just wrap this up? Is this is this it? I mean, it's not it. It's, you know, it's a competent police work, excellent investigation. Um, I'm just surprised there's not more to it, given the length of this script. The murders. Now comes the time when we discuss the grim details of today's case. We are no stranger to suffering the very worst and depraved side of humanity here on The Casual Criminalist, but as ever, I, George, as a writer, am always aware that we want to keep our scripts respectful to the victims we cover and avoid my scripts of coming simple gore porn. Furthermore, I'm always aware that many in our audience care not for the gory details and instead tune in for the thrill of the case and to follow the police investigation. Yes, indeed. And I know some people tune in for their like- Simon, stop skipping over the gory details. And I'm like, bro, literally every other true podcast, crime podcast out there can, can suit your needs more than this. This is the one where it's about investigations and busting fucking horrible criminals and CSI and not, and then he slept inside her body. No, no, we're not here for people sleeping inside other people's bodies. And if you are, go somewhere else. <laughs> ah, shit. There's a line. 
So with that in mind, today I've opted to isolate the grisly details of the murder here in its own specific chapter. As ever, in my videos, we'll keep the names and details of the killers to a minimum and the names of details of the victims to a maximum. The killers are a foul pestilence in human form, worthy of no dignity, no quarter, and certainly no memorialization, whereas the victims are worthy of all of these things. It is exactly in support of that end that I have only just introduced their names and consequently you have all heard Kenneth and Nicholas' names dozens of times before that of the killers was uttered even once. The intentionally long-winded introduction to this chapter has hopefully given everyone who does not want to hear the gory details the opportunity to skip ahead, and for all of those who wish to have missed my subtle cue, this is your last chance to skip ahead. Yeah, also, I don't know, George, um, I don't know how gruesome you're going to get, but let's not go let's not go too hard on it. I mean, we'll cover what needs to be covered, alright? Bit of a compromise? With that in mind, let's keep this quick and respectful, then we can move on to the best bit of today's story where the bastards get what's coming to them. Yes, I'm excited about that. The day of the murders began like any other in the lives of small-time criminals. The boys, led by Pang Shun Yi, were out and about, trying car doors around the North Point area, hoping to grab some loose change and maybe jack a bougie car stereo that they could later sell. They reconvened for lunch, where they compared their takings and found their efforts had come up short. Their takings barely covered lunch, so determined to make some good money by the time the day was done, Pang Shun Yi decided they head up to Bremer Hill and steal some of the copper wiring from the various electrical substations and power lines that ran through the quiet and docile area. That sounds dangerous. And also, how expensive is copper? <laughs> is that we're going to steal live electrical wires at great risk to ourselves to sell it for scrap? Okay. Pang led his four accomplices across the hills, but again to no avail. Every substation they found was locked, and every bit of copper that they might otherwise have been able to grab and thus go home satisfied proved frustratingly just out of reach. Finding themselves empty-handed, every single step taken simply fueled the group's anger and rage even more, so until eventually Pang ordered them to give up on the idea of stealing altogether, just go rob someone, and call it a day. Pang actually lived close by in a small wooden hut perched among the remains of an otherwise long-abandoned quarry, and thus he knew the area well. He knew that, although quiet, one of the pathways leading through the hills was reasonably popular with walkers, and that if they picked the right spot, they'd be able to ambush a passerby quickly and get away even quicker. He couldn't believe his luck when he stumbled upon Kenneth and Nicola, as not only were they completely alone, but he reasoned since they were Europeans, they must be rich. He split his gang up into two and ordered them to approach the pair in a pincer movement, blocking off any possible route that they might have for escape. They pounced and surrounded Kenneth and Nicola, demanding they turn out their pockets and hand over their valuables. They had only a dollar and nothing of value to hand over. For Pang and his gang, who had spent all day traipsing over a hot hillside in desperate search of money, who were tired, who were angry, this answer was not good enough. Of course, they had money and they were going to give it now. Kenneth and Nicola's explanations to the contrary fell on deaf ears. They even physically turned out their pockets and showed the gang the insides of their bags. But it was to no avail. Pang kept on insisting, and every time he was rebuked, he continued insisting and became more and more aggressive and short-tempered. Kenneth stood his ground as he did his best to shield Nicola from the increasingly hostile situation that surrounded the pair. Kenneth legends. Shouting was met by shouting, pushing by pushing, and punching was met by punching. Alas, all attempts to resist were moot. Kenneth and Nicola were only a pair, one who had an arm bound in a sling, and it didn't take long for the situation to turn violent for both of them, and they were on the floor and at the gang's mercy. With both Nicola and Kenneth on the ground, Pang's immediate attention was on Kenneth, whom he perceived as the greater threat despite his broken arm. Broken collarbone, no? I remember a broken collarbone because I have broken my collarbone. With Kenneth on, and it's like fighting with that, it's like that's going to be very difficult. 
even if he's had the 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 splint put in the splint the uh the metal thing it's still going to be really hard with Kenneth on the ground and clearly being no threat to the gang, the others proved reluctant to strike him further, and it was only under the threat of being next that they all relented and continued the merciless assault upon Kenneth. He was beaten with hand, with foot, and with stick until he stopped moving and went limp, at which point his arms and legs were bound and he was asphyxiated until dead with a stick. With Kenneth's death, all attention turned to Nicola, who was subject to a most brutal attack that lasted for many hours. She was raped multiple times by Pang, as the others simply stood around, smoked cigarettes, kept a lookout, and made small talk. When Pang was finally finished, she was killed in much the same manner as Kenneth. No witnesses, Pang insisted. Speaking on the decision to kill Kenneth and Nicola, Detective Collins noted, Their criminality had extended to just petty crime. A couple of them used to work as basically beggars, opening car doors at the pier and begging for money, so they weren't career criminals at all. They were just young kids. Two of them were very young. Pang was a member of the Fuk Yi Hing Triad Society, and he was just a low-level soldier or footman. He wasn't known as a fighter. The gang had come from the top of the hill, from the mast where they originally tried to steal copper from, and then they noticed the couple sitting there studying, and that's when they made the decision to try and rob them. Pang did say they rushed them. I think that was his exact words. And it just became a fight and they overpowered Nicola and Kenneth. They had various tools. They picked up a piece of wood, similar to a pickaxe handle, or at least half of one, and they just overpowered them. Pang took control. Hold him down and stop him struggling. Hit him. I have to hit him. You hit him. We all have to hit him. He orchestrated what happened. The way the violence took place. Continued investigation. During the police interrogation, all five of the suspects took part in reenactments of the crime back on Bremer Hill. Seemingly, they all knew they were caught banged to rights and were now acquiescing to every women request from investigators in a desperate effort to get their inevitable prison sentences shortened. This form of criminal reenactment was a trailblazing procedure back in 1985, but one that, despite some skepticism from the old guard of the criminology world, was one that the Hong Kong judiciary was very keen to routinely implement due to the benefits that David Hobson describes to quote, it's an extension of the voluntary statement. So obviously participation in these case reconstructions must be voluntary, but it is very dramatic because it is oral, it is visual, and it can make a very big impression on people who watch it. And it can also add great veracity to the statement if the guy can point things out and you can see it happening. What's the point of this? They're going to, they're not going to trial because assuming they're pleading guilty because they've confessed. Why do we need these confessions? For who? Uh, these reenactments who's this for i guess it could be for um sentencing like to determine the sentences but guys reenacting this doesn't seem like the biggest brain of ideas because it's a horribly horrifically violent crime that you're all very guilty of and it sounds like you know if they've got the death penalty that's all where you're heading or if not you're in jail for the rest of your lives unless you're really young maybe those two younger guys are going to get away with it somewhat or like get shortened terms even though they're being tried as adults let's see finally with all the evidence gathered the confessions extracted and the crime reenacted on video the police were finally ready to send the suspects to court and formally begin criminal proceedings against them the only job left was to submit the boys pleas and somehow shockingly neither i george as the author of today's piece nor any commentator whose work i've read during the completion of this piece are really quite sure why they did this but all pled not guilty on charges despite their earlier confessions uh what are you up to you guys <laughs> you're confessing you're doing a reenactment and they're being like yeah, yeah, yeah that's how it would have it's like oj simpson that's how it would have happened if i did it which i didn't despite all pleas to the contrary from the investigating detectives all of the boys remained tight-lipped and refused to budge on their plea 
for a time anyway. Eventually, in September 1986, with the court date looming ever nearer, one of the suspects finally buckled under the pressure and desperate to do all he could to save his own skin, one Sam Long, the youngest of the accused, changed his mind, admitted his guilt, and began pointing all available fingers and spewing all available dirt on his fellow accused. I can't believe it took this long. Surely just get one. Get like the least involved guy, this young guy, to be like, yo, you tell us exactly what happened, we'll give you immunity. You'll walk free. We'll keep an eye on you to make sure you're not a gang member, but you can be free. And it'd just be like, sing. they already are all singing. Just get him to sing louder. Everyone else remained silent and upheld their claims of not guilty, but it mattered not at this point. The police had all the evidence and testimony that they needed to confidently push the case to a trial, a trial which finally began in November 1986. The Trial as the blacked-out prison van carrying the accused pulled into the whitewash walls of Hong Kong Supreme Court, the media and Hong Kong at large exploded with fervor and interest in the case. Reporters and their cameras pressed eagerly up against the perimeter fence of the building, completely surrounded by a shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder mass of citizenry that stretched as far as the eye could see. Legal expert Andrew Bruce commented on why this trial commanded such a fascination from the people of Hong Kong even 19 months after the killing of Nicola and Kenneth, quote, it was the kind of story that you expect even more coverage from the press than that of a typical murder case, and it sure got it. There is something very special about every murder case, and in that sense, this was no different to any other case, but it did have that element of the unexplained, and I guess, in that sense, it was unique. The Crown Prosecution Service presented over 150 exhibits, including 18 bundles of photographs, audio and video recordings of the accused, the murder weapons, and items of clothing recovered from both the victims and the accused. Also called forth were 37 witnesses, including one Sam Lung, who, lest we forget, was the youngest member of the gang, who had pleaded his guilt and offered to testify against his former comrades. For his honesty, Sam Lung was kept separate from the rest of the gang and was being held at Her Majesty's pleasure, i.e. indefinitely. It's all they figured out what to do with him. <laughs> that is allowed? Just, I guess he's been arrested and charged. So, yeah, that makes sense. The accused were met by an all-male jury, this being an old and thankfully long-abandoned tradition in British and therefore colonial law, in which cases deemed too horrible were viewed as being inappropriate for women to hear and subsequently were only heard by men. Because <laughs> women are weak! <laughs> that is quite special. This was really 1986. Britain and the colonies? Come on. What the fuck? The prosecution began with its opening statements, in which it painted a most horrific picture, one in which Kenneth and Nicola, two innocent bystanders, were killed and tortured, purely so that the flunked mugging which was attempted upon them would have no witnesses. The jury heard how a mugging became a killing frenzy, how Kenneth and Nicola suffered over 100 and 500 wounds respectively trying to defend themselves, and how Nicola had to suffer a horrific, hours-long sexual attack at the hands of Pang Shunyi, all while the others stood around and did nothing. Their only input to change the proceedings being to choke Kenneth and Nicola to death. A linchpin piece of evidence was Kenneth's Nike trainers. The prosecution explained to the court how these trainers, which had been seized from Tam Si Foon, were clearly Kenneth's, as attested to by the store receipts provided by his parents and several witnesses who confirmed that Si Foon had boasted about taking them from Kenneth following the murders. 
further context on why the train has proved to be such a crucial piece of evidence can be found once again from Andrew Bruce to quote recovered evidence takes it out of just the recortation of what the police saw heard and wrote down during their interviews juries like to see something more than just a confession the trial continued for 56 days and on the 20th of January 1987 after an exhaustive presentation of evidence by the prosecution the jury retired to deliberate it took only five hours before a verdict was rendered all guilty on all charges Pan Shunyi, Tam Sifun, and Chu Wai Man all received the death penalty. But before we get too excited about these monsters finally facing some real consequences for their actions, we must remember that as much as Hong Kong technically had the death penalty in 1987, in real terms it did not. The UK had abolished the death penalty in 1965, and a year later in 1966, what can only be described as a political shitstorm ensued following the hanging of one Wong Kai Kei, the last person executed in Hong Kong. Oh, because back then, Hong Kong was still a part of Britain, right? When was that ended? 1997? But apparently, <laughs> they were still about to execute people. It didn't go down well. Shit. Following his death, the Reform Club of Hong Kong, an old liberal advocacy group in the city, along with many of its powerful friends and benefactors, kind of successfully lobbied the city to follow the UK's example and abolish the death penalty. And so from 1966, the death penalty was suspended. Now, suspension is not abolition, and from 1966 to 1993, when the death penalty was formally abolished, capital punishment existed in a state of bizarre limbo in Hong Kong, in which it was suspended so no one was executed, but was still technically on the books until it was formally legally removed in 1993. At the same time, many crimes, such as murder, still legally mandated death. So, during this 30-year limbo period, the city's governor would simply commute the sentences of anyone convicted to death to life in prison. So, I'm afraid, dear viewers, that means exactly what you think it means for Pang Shung Yi, Tam Shi Fung, and Chi Wai Man. As per this tradition, the trio's death penalty was commuted to life imprisonment in 1993 by Chris Patton, the last colonial governor of Hong Kong. As for Cheong Yao Hang, as he was under 18 when the murder was committed, he was ordered to be kept at Her Majesty's pleasure, i.e. indefinitely, as we discussed earlier. The youngest, Wong Sam Lung, who had already pled guilty before the beginning of the trial, was already being held at Her Majesty's pleasure, and he continued to be held under those conditions. The killers were all whisked away to Stanley Maximum Security Prison on Hong Kong Island, where for the next decade they existed in a state of essential legal limbo. With all of them either being held at Her Majesty's pleasure or being given life sentences, none of them were given set-in-stone dates for their release, and with the return of Hong Kong to Chinese rule being only 10 years away from their sentencing, and none of them having a hope in hell of being released before then anyway, no reviews or hearings were held before the 1997 handover, with their futures and possible release dates being left to the incoming Chinese government to render judgments on. They gotta be like, do the Chinese have the death penalty? I feel like they have the death penalty they're like are we going to make it because there's no uk are we going to be hung i kind of i mean i don't think so but that would have been nice for chong yao hang and Wan sam lung the youngest pair held at her majesty's pleasure their case was on the desk of tung chi hua the first chief executive of hong kong's desk before the paint on his office walls had even dried they were now being held under the authority of a monarch who had relinquished all sovereign rights to the territory in which they were held, and this legal web had to somehow be untangled. Tung Chi Hua rendered his judgments after consulting with the surviving family of Kenneth and Nicola, both of whom had forgiven Wan and Tung specifically, and implored the new chief executive to show leniency in his new sentencing. Wow, that is some high-minded shit right there. Good for you. Because these are, like, the guy who perpetrated it, the ringleader, should be in prison forever. There's no doubt in my mind. But the two kids, the two young, the two teenagers, one of them was 16. 
He's been in prison for 10 years. That's enough. That's enough. Good for you. He kind of did this and decided that Wan should be incarcerated for 27 years and Chung for a minimum of 30 years. Wan served out all of those years and was released from prison in 2004. Teary-eyed and shaking, he gave a statement to the press following his release, claiming that the receiving of the forgiveness of Kenneth and Nicholas' families was both a huge weight off of his shoulders and an even greater burden than his initial guilt, as he claimed to not feel deserving of their forgiveness. You're not deserving of their forgiveness, but it's very nice they forgave you. Nonetheless, he committed to seizing the opportunity fully by reintegrating back into Hong Kong society and living a peaceful life. He later found work through the Criminal Rehabilitation Service as an administrative officer at a law firm where he still works to this day. Good for you. Yeah, it's nice to see uh, the, the prison system actually working. That's nice. That's really nice. Chung Ya Hang's release from prison will be less straightforward. A change in Hong Kong law in 2004 meant that serious criminals no longer received automatic release following their sentence jail terms, and instead, every single serious incarcerated criminal had to go before a parole board and prove their rehabilitation in order to earn their release. Chong had his hearing on the 6th of April 2006, where he argued he was rehabilitated and implored the court to give him a lesser sentence akin to one's. His arguments were found lacking, however, and rather than having sentence lessened, his sentence was extended from 30 years in prison to 35. A sentence that, given the heinous nature of his crimes, was told he should be grateful for. This should have seen him released in January of this year, but fortunately for him, appeals against the decision proved successful and he was released in December 2007. He also found work through the Criminal Rehabilitation Service as an inspection worker for a public utility company, where he still works to this day. As for Pang Shunyi, Tam Si Foon, and Chu Wei Man, all of their limboed life sentences, which hadn't had a potential parole date placed on them due to imminent handover, were upheld by Tung Chi Hua, and they were given no date for possible parole. They were to remain behind bars indefinitely. Pang and Chu remain behind bars to this day, and in my humble opinion, long may they remain there. Yes, 100%. There's obviously different levels of guilt involved in this crime, and these guys deserve to be in there forever, especially the Pang dude. Tam would get to leave prison in 2009, but not in the way he would have wanted. Rather than being carried to Freedom Trampoline in the back of a prison van, he was instead carried to Cape Collinson Crematorium in the back of a hearse, having passed away from cancer. Public response Before we start with this chapter, it's only right that in the spirit of transparency I point out that I, George, am not Chinese. I'm a European immigrant to Hong Kong, one of the rare Europeans that actually attempts to integrate into Chinese culture. Admittedly, as I speak both Mandarin and Cantonese, live in a local neighborhood and surround myself as much as possible by Chinese people and culture, rather than living in one of Hong Kong's European expat enclaves and making no attempt to integrate as many Europeans in Hong Kong do. But the fact of the matter remains, I'm not Chinese, I will never be Chinese, and ultimately, for right or wrong, all of my reporting on and discussion of racial relations in Hong Kong will come from this perspective. I, George, am under no delusions regarding the fact that I am not the best person to be discussing this particular issue. But the fact of the matter remains that racial issues are an inseparable part of this story, and omitting it would be nothing but intellectual dishonesty on my part. All attempts have been made to seek the opinions and thoughts of members of Hong Kong's Chinese and minority communities for the completion of this chapter, but ultimately, please remember that this comes from the perspective of a European immigrant to Hong Kong. And with that said, let's dive in. The accusation in a nutshell is that the Royal Hong Kong Police specifically and the colonial government more widely committed significantly more resources and paid significantly greater heed to this case purely due to the fact that the victims happened to be two white British nationals. 
The Royal Hong Kong Police Force vehemently denied this accusation back in 1985 and continued to maintain that position up until the end of the British administration of the force following the 97 handover. The Colonial Police Force maintained that it had a colorblind approach and that the Bramahill murders received the response it did because it was exceptionally rare and unusually brutal. It is notable that the only people who still publicly endorse this position nearly 40 years later are European former police officers and European former members of the Hong Kong judiciary. An example of this is Andrew Bruce, who in 1985 was serving as a prosecutor with the Hong Kong Department of Justice. In a television interview in the early 2010s, he commented the following, Every killing is awful. It must be a horrendous thing. But there was something about this one, which was just such a total waste, a total lack of any explanation as to why it happened. One naturally wonders what that something was in this case. It certainly wasn't the fact that it was a double homicide, as although Hong Kong was and remains a safe city, this is hardly the first instance of such a crime. For example, in I-79, the remains of 24-year-old Hong Si Hong and 19-year-old Yu Man Tung were discovered in Sham Sui Po, and it was ruled a double homicide with the Royal Hong Kong Police Force. This case only had four officers assigned to it, and was never solved, and uh, never even had a single English-language news piece written about it. Unless there's something missing, that leaves only one something different about the Bremer Hills case. This opinion is shared by Stephen Vines, an independent journalist and commentator who certainly believes there was racial bias in the police's handling of this case, commenting the following. There was extreme levels of shock, and then the shock turned, because a lot of particularly the Chinese media started saying, oh, the only reason the police are so interested in this is because they were two white kids. Would the same level of attention be paid if these were two white kids? And I think the truth is, probably yes wait what does he mean does that quote make sense <laughs> um i don't get it like he says they were two white kids would they be the same if it was two white kids all right i don't know <laughs> we'll get what's going on here right is it racist or not it seems like the police did harder work because these these were two white kids so far doesn't it a little a lot. Dave Hodson, former assistant commissioner of the Royal Hong Kong Police Force, disagrees, however, and believes uh, that all the accusations of racial bias by the Royal Hong Kong Police uh, were simply the result of frenzy and fervor by the Chinese language media, stating, There was a large turnout of police in the early stages, and that caused the media and people to speculate, why is this case being given so much priority? And simply, you have to search a hill. Yeah, that's a fair counter-argument, because we're saying, like, you know, that other double homicide got four people on it, this Bremer Hills one got hundreds at a helicopter. It's because they were searching this this hill for evidence and stuff, as we were talking about earlier on. An interesting point indeed from Dave, and in the spirit of fairness to his claims, we'll now list all of the other homicide investigations that received as great a response from Royal Hong Kong police when the victim uh, was Chinese or an ethnic minority. <laughs> Pause for dramatic effect, because there's none. Holy shit, okay, never mind. This opinion is not universal amongst European veterans of the Royal Hong Kong Police Force, however, as one interviewed for the completion of this script who asked to remain anonymous commented, at the end of the day, in the Royal Hong Kong Police Force, we did treat white expatriates better. I'm not saying it was right, you understand, but it's just the way things were back in the day. Expatriates districts got more bobbies on the beat and would basically always have their crimes handled quickest by CID. I left the force back in 84, so I wasn't there for the Bremer Hill murders, but knowing the force like I did, as well as many of the lads involved in sorting that mess out, of course, that case got more attention than most. 
The unfortunate fact of the matter is that Hong Kong, between 1841 and 1997, was a colony, and accordingly the British and other Europeans in the city received significantly better treatment than the native Chinese from the colonial government. Yeah, this is definitely nothing new to colonialism. It's kind of what colonialism was. The crazy thing with Hong Kong is it happened until 1997. I remember the handover of Hong Kong. That's nuts. They lived in bigger apartments, were paid significantly more than average, their children near universally attended private schools far beyond the financial means of the average Hong Konger, and generally they all lived privileged lives, all but completely insulated from the day-to-day experiences of a native Chinese Hong Konger. As previously stated, however, everything I, George, might proclaim as a writer in this regard comes from the perspective of a European immigrant to Hong Kong. As such, ultimately, I don't feel it's my place to bring the gavel down in judgment in any regard on this matter. As such, I would like to close this discussion by quoting directly from a Chinese Hong Kong, a friend of mine who has asked to remain anonymous and who commented the following on the case. To commence with, it must be noted that a lot of assumptions are made in order to make a better inference regarding oh, whether the colonial police back in 1985 during the Bremer Hill murders incident oh, are prejudice. This is to highlight that the following analysis is solely an inference, not necessarily an accurate answer. The analysis focuses on the question, why did the British government, the colonial police force, spend that much manpower on searching for the murderers on the Bremer Hill murders incident? Was it because of victims? nationality. The significance of the Bremer Hill murders is that two local British youngsters were killed, leading to 800 policemen joining the investigation and 18,000 citizens being interviewed. An alleged anonymous businessman donated an additional 500,000 Hong Kong dollars as a reward on successful finding of the murderers. It can be seen that the case caught the awareness of the colonial police force and they spent a lot of effort to find the murderers. As previously mentioned, it is, and this is all the same quote by the way, as previously mentioned, it is suggested that the police force was spending that much effort due to the victims' nationalities, which were British. To better analyze, here is a comparison. In 1967, Lam Bun, a radio commentator, was killed oh, when his car was torched. From the fact that the murderers have still not been found, it is believed that not much manpower was spent by the police in this case. One question is now raised. If Lam were British, would the British government have spent more manpower to pursue the murderers? One may argue that back in the day, the police force only had a limited number of policemen. However, the police tactical unit was already established, and it was sufficient enough to suppress a riot in the 1960s. This showcases that the police force could have done more. Was it because of nationality? Back to the Bremhill murders. After a rece- this is the quote still continuing. I'll tell you when it ends. Back to the Bremhill murders. After receiving reliable sources from an anonymous triad member, the murderers were arrested within 48 hours. While in Lamb's case, there were similar tip-offs that never led to arrests. They were never investigated nor interviewed. Nor was it deemed important enough for the police to interview 18,000 people. It is clear that the manpower spent in those two cases was completely unequal. Thus, we have to ask. Why was the process that was done with such efficiency in Bremer Hill murders not done for Lam Bun? Was it because of the victim's nationality? Now one might argue that the number of police had increased by the time of the Bremer Hill murders and that investigative technology was more developed. Furthermore, Hong Kong was gradually becoming a safer place as Chinese rule began to slowly get re-established over the city. But during Lam's case, the colonial period, without any Chinese influence in governance, was chaos. If all of this was true, however, the Lam Bun case should have been investigated at a later date, instead of just being abandoned if the murderers were to be arrested. So to answer the question, was the difference in police response due to the victim's nationality? Yes, probably was. And that's where the quote ends.
As previously stated, I, George, will not be giving my opinion on the matter, as I don't feel it's appropriate. I'll leave it to you in the audience to form your own opinions. I would like to stress, however, that this discussion is not intended to belittle the plight and suffering of Kenneth and Nicola, but in all good conscience, I believe it would have been disingenuous of myself to write about this case and not pay heed to this tragically inseparable part of the narrative. Conclusion The families of both Nicola and Kenneth uh, remained in Hong Kong for many years following their tragic deaths. Both families, however, made their way back to the UK when the parents of both families reached retirement age. Their families' return home would not be the end of their legacy in Hong Kong, however, as in the pair's memory and in honor of the pair's altruistic natures, their parents jointly set up the Kenneth McBride and Nicola Mars Memorial Fund in 1985 in order to help disadvantaged but gifted local Hong Kongers access further and higher education. The fund continues to exist to this day and every year supports one to two hundred disadvantaged students. Of the thousands that have been helped by the fund over the years, highlights include a student who, following the loss of his mother to cancer at an early age, found himself determined to become a doctor. Thanks to the fund, he was able to attend Chinese University Hong Kong's medical school and today works as a doctor. And a girl who was orphaned at a young age, and thanks to the funds, is now studying in Taipei after hitting it out of the park in her studies at Hong Kong University. On the funds, Holy Trinity College principal Mrs. Jane Orr commented, The fund provides a positive encouragement to our students in recognition of their strength and perseverance under adverse conditions. In practice, students have made use of the grants in sponsoring their own family expenses or buying additional study reference materials. The grant has extended to them a spirit of community support. It's a rare thing indeed when we get to finish on a happy note here at Casual Criminalist, so let's end today's show here on this most rare and refreshing silver lining to an otherwise dark and morbid cloud. And as we wrap things up, I ever implore you in the audience to give no heed to the monsters of today's episode, those creatures foul enough to steal the lives of two young and innocent bystanders before they'd even got it started. They've gotten more than enough airtime over the years. Instead, give your thoughts to Kenneth and Nicola, their families, and the thousands of disadvantaged students who have gone on to lead rich and fulfilling lives in their memory. Dismembered Appendices 1. The dark chapters of history always prove the most interesting to behold, but as the emotional creatures we humans are, we run the risk of overstating the frequency of such horrific events and possibly developing undue prejudice to the places in which they took place. With this in mind, and not wanting to tarnish any of our dear audience's perceptions of Hong Kong, I'd like to take a moment to stress just how safe Hong Kong is. Statistically, it's the sixth safest city on Earth, with a violent crime rate which continues on a steady downwards trajectory, and homicides per year falling from just over 100 a year after handover in 1997 to 28 in 2016, for an all-time low of just 17 in 2011. In comparison, London, a city with a similar-sized population, had 107 homicides in 2016 and 117 in 2011. In New York, a city with a slightly larger population than Hong Kong, had 628 homicides in 2016 and 515 in 2011. Okay, <laughs> Hong Kong's mad safe. That's crazy. In a city which, as a resident, regardless of the district in which you reside, the notion of criminality doesn't enter your day-to-day -day thoughts. Uh, a city in which my local female friends find it odd that I ask them to message me when they get home safely, and a city in which I think nothing of a drunken 2.5-mile stagger home on New Year's Day. We have focused a lot on the criminality 
of Hong Kong this year on casual criminals, but despite the depressing depths of incidents such as the Bremer Hill murders in which we are focused today or the absurd heights of Yip Kai Foon as ever, we'd like to stress that these are exceptional cases and are not representative of the criminality of the city, certainly not in 1985, much less today. Number two. As ever, thanks are owed to various people and organizations who made the script possible but were not directly mentioned in the text. Firstly, I'd like to thank the Hong Kong Police Force Data Access Department for being exceptionally accommodating to my ever-constant nagging and pestering for information. They always come up, George. It's nice they get credit again. Second, Secondly, I'd like to thank the Hong Kong Police Old Comrades Association and the Royal Hong Kong Police Association who were able to put me in direct communications with officers involved in the case or their surviving families. And finally, I'd like to thank the producers of Crime Investigation Asia for allowing me access to their raw interview footage. And that is where we end today's episode. I hope you liked it. If you're not subscribed to this show yet, please make sure you are subscribed. Like if you're watching on YouTube. And as always, thank you for watching. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.